Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for CN's first quarter 2020 earnings call. I would like to remind you about the comments already made regarding forward-looking statements. With me today is J.J. Ruet, our President and Chief Executive Officer, Ghislain Hull, our Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Rob Riley, our Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, Keith Reardon, our Senior Vice President, Consumer Product Supply Chain, and James Cairns, our Senior Vice President, Rail-Centric Supply Chain. Once again, I do remind you to please limit yourselves to one question so that everyone has the opportunity to participate in the Q&A session. The IR team will be available after the call for any follow-up questions. It is now my pleasure to turn the call over to CN's President and Chief Executive Officer, Monsieur J.J. Rivet. Thank you, Paul. And good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first quarter earning call. In keeping with our commitment to safety, I hope you and your families are staying safe, practicing social distancing, and helping to reduce the spread of COVID-19. We at CN have been diligent in providing a safe environment for all of our employees, and I'm happy to report the railroad is safe and CN never slowed down. As we look back to the quarter, my first message is that despite the unusual challenge we were faced with, the men and women of CN produced solid financial results. But I also believe it is important to look ahead. My second message is that the resiliency of CN, which we demonstrated last quarter, will serve us well through this challenging time and position us for the recovery. Our investors know we manage the business to deliver long-term performance, and we continue to build for 2021 and beyond. We will balance the need to manage through the short term with the focus on long-term performance of the business. The network is currently in full operation and very fluid. We have the capacity to move goods and enable the eventual recovery of the economy. We also continue to build on our technology big ideas, such as automating track inspection, automating train inspection, fully enabling a connected and paperless train crews and increasing the automation of trains. Rob will walk you through the strength of our operation <clears throat> and highlight some specific progress we continue to make in technology and safety. Our financial strength will also serve us well in the near to long term. We have a very robust balance sheet and a proven track record of dealing with any type of business disruption. Ghislaine will give you more color on our financial strength, our costs, our free cash, as well as a balance sheet. Our 2020 CapEx will further enhance capacity in the strategic Edmonton to Rupert growth corridor, as well as the infrastructure required for our growth in and around the Port of Vancouver. Keith and James will speak as to how we are building businesses even in this tough marketplace. ESG is a strength for CN. Our carbon footprint continues to decrease and our fuel costs continue to improve. In these unusual times, we are beefing up our cybersecurity as well as pushing further on a broad range of key ECS aspects related to gender, human capital, and environmental strategies. So, in summary, a good quarter despite a month, of month long of illegal rail blockade, a proven resilience that will help us deliver in the near term, and we are ready to support the recovery and deliver long-term shareholders' value. On that, I will pass it on to Rob, who will talk, talk to you about the operation. All right. Thank you, JJ. Team delivered impressive results in Q1, with car velocity improving 5%, train velocity improving by 7%, and dwell was reduced by 4%. Even better if we look at the month of March after the illegal blockades have been lifted, car and train velocity improved 10% year-over-year, while dwell was reduced by 
As you know, by increasing car and train velocity while reducing dwell, it allows us to use less locomotives and cars on our network to move the same amount of GTMs. In addition, we had a very solid performance on other fronts as well. In safety, accident and injury rates decreased 36% and 3% respectively. In productivity and sustainability, fuel efficiency improved 6% to an all-time Q1 record for CN while avoiding over 100,000 tons of CO2 emissions. The disciplined execution of the CN team and how we utilize our locomotives on a daily basis led to a $20 million savings in fuel efficiency year over year. We remain focused on maintaining our industry leadership and progressing on our long-term carbon efficiency target, and we expect to be able to deliver low single-digit year-over-year fuel efficiency for the balance of the year. What is most impressive is that we were able to achieve all of this while we faced multiple challenges, including 30-plus illegal blockades across our network in February and the subsequent recovery of backlog traffic in March. Needless to say, I'm very proud of the entire CN team. As JJ mentioned, we are also well positioned to continue to operate safely and efficiently throughout the impact of the pandemic. Our priorities have been and continue to be to protect our employees, ensure the continuity of our railroad as an essential service, and right-size our resources to the decreasing demand. 500 locomotives are now laid up, reducing fuel, maintenance, and labor costs. Our active online inventory of rail cars has been reduced by 16%. Over 2,500 employees have been furloughed, and nearly 700 weekly train starts have been removed, leading to 23% less active trains on our network. We've also curtailed switching activities at multiple locations with reduced car volumes and discontinued work at a couple more locomotive shops, allowing us to further right-size our transportation and mechanical workforces. While we are aggressively right-sizing our resources to fit the demand, we do so with a purpose and a plan. We lay up our least reliable locomotives first and ensure that they are stored in good working condition so that when the time comes, we can get them back into service pulling freight quickly. We store our cars and locomotives at locations where they will be needed. And with our furloughed employees, we've established regular and frequent communication so that they are aware of our business demands. In addition, with fewer trains on our network, we're using this time to further strengthen our railroad by providing more productive time to our engineering gangs to maintain our infrastructure. This will allow us to more quickly ramp up to volumes when demands increase. Finally, we continue to progress on our technology initiatives. The FRA has now approved our test program to perform automated track inspections between Chicago and New Orleans. By operating these cars in regular train service, this multi-phased approach will ultimately lead to less on-track inspection time for track in infrastructure and more consistent and regular track evaluations. This will create capacity improve safety and reliability, and save costs. And we're already seeing the positive impacts to our railroad with a 90% reduction in track defects found as we've inspected 12 times more track miles than last year with better inspection quality and lower costs. In closing, thanks goes out to all of our essential employees and the vital role we play in moving critical supplies to keep the North American supply chain open and fluid. With that, I'll turn it over to James. Thank you, Rob. In Q1, we demonstrated our ability to bounce back in times of adversity. This will help us in the months ahead and leave us well positioned for the recovery. Let me walk you through a few specific market segments highlighting our Q1 performance. In Q1, we set a record for domestic potash with revenue growth in the range of 20% compared to the prior winter. We also produced all-time records for Canadian grain and coal in March. Despite some difficult conditions in Q1, we handled the majority of Canadian grain rail shipments, with market share of 51% for the quarter and almost 52% in March. Looking broadly at energy-related carloads, crude by rail was a significant growth driver, up 45% year-over-year for the quarter, with nearly a third of that volume being heavy, non-dangerous, undiluted crude. 
We also saw sequential growth in Fraxan from Q4 2019 to Q1 2020 of over 40%. Turning to propane, volumes were flat for the quarter in spite of the negative impact of the rail blockades, the CTA mandated train speed restriction, and a general lack of propane supply. Importantly, our market share of Western Canadian propane kept on growing, from the low 70s to almost 80% in a quarter. We saw more of the available propane move to export markets via the new CN Prince Rupert supply chain, which connects Canadian production with more profitable and rateable long-term demand in Asia. As we look at the second quarter, we know what will be tough. We know crude, fraxan, and jet fuel are in decline. Western Canada Select, the Canadian crude benchmark, needs to be in the $25 to $30 range before curtailed production could come back online. In Q2, we expect to move the majority of our crude volume will be heavy, undiluted crude. This heavy crude, which is similar to a diluent recovery unit spec product, will be less impacted than dilbit crude in Q2 and will continue to move, but at a reduced run rate. This speaks to the diversity and resiliency of our crude franchise. Aluminum, steel, plastics, and some chemicals will continue to be impacted by the temporary auto production shutdown. Once production resumes, we will be ready to fill those supply chains back up. On the positive, and in spite of the current environment, we could see more record volumes of Canadian coal and grain in Q2, just like we saw in Q1. We will continue to see growth in propane as Alta Gas ramps up volume through 2020. Our unique geographic franchise will continue to underpin our medium and longer term growth and serves as an unmatched strategic competitive advantage. We exclusively provide physical service to the Port of Prince Rupert as well as the North Shore of Vancouver. Late this year or early next, Pembina is expected to commission their export propane facility at Watson Island at the Port of Prince Rupert creating a second wave of West Coast export propane carloads. Vancouver grain export nameplate capacity is expected to increase by almost 50% with all new facilities exclusively CN served. In addition, we expect to see another six high throughput loop track country elevators come online exclusively served by CN by the end of 2021, adding in the range of 10% more car spots to the CN network. Tech business is on track to start April 2021, and if marketing conditions remain favorable, we could see coal spur continue to ramp up production, which will position us to move record coal volumes in 2021. Finally, speaking on behalf of Keith and myself, CN's pricing strategy for carload and intermodal is consistent. We will continue to maintain our price discipline, pricing ahead of railway cost inflation, as we keep a close eye on the recovery curve so that we ramp up capacity and price smartly to allocate capacity through the recovery phase. I will now turn it over to Keith to walk you through our consumer markets. Keith? Thank you, James, and good afternoon, everyone. Let me begin by saying we produced strong results in the first quarter and have kept essential products moving. We also showed we could be agile and resourceful and quickly develop supply chain alternatives to connect Montreal and Toronto to keep some of our customers' business moving despite the blockades. Let me highlight a few points for each segment in Q1. On domestic intermodal, we continue to develop and refine our product offering to convert business from truck to rail using our CNTL domestic retail service and our wholesale partners' services. The acquisitions of Transex and H&R and the development of our cargo cool business segment have given us the ability to increase our market presence in foods and other goods requiring temperature protective service. For international intermodal, the entire overseas shipping industry was impacted with volumes weakened from the supply side and now from the demand factors. We saw 37 blank sailings for the quarter. Finally, automotive. The industry came to a halt in March following the temporary closures of the North American assembly plant, an issue for the entire rail industry. Our import business in Eastern Passage and in Vancouver continued to move volumes, but at a lesser pace. 
Now looking ahead, in domestic intermodal, we remain focused on moving essential goods and continue to see good opportunities in the refrigerated segment. For example, we renewed and expanded our relationship with Maritime Ontario, one of Canada's leading transportation and logistics services providers. Several additional strategic growth initiatives continue to show results, including the EMP transborder volumes that increased 15% over Q1 2019. Moving over to the international intermodal business, through close collaboration with our supply chain partners, we are mitigating the potential congestion at inland terminals as warehouses and distribution centers become full. This enables us to prepare for the bounce back in imports. We will see some volume gains in early May related to the business transition of the shipping line, the ONE, back to CN. We continue to focus and drive forward midterm strategic and structural opportunities at our international intermodal gateways through close collaboration with our terminal partners, such as the proposed expansion plan at both Vancouver and Prince Rupert with GCT and DP World and working with PSA in Halifax. The CSX CN container services from the ports of New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia continue to grow and create a new balanced gateway into Canada from those ports. Lastly, automotive, where in Q1 we renewed and extended our agreement with FCA to handle over 80% of their Canadian destined traffic for another five years. With the first North American assembly plants only set to reopen in a few weeks, Q2 volumes will be weak. We continue to focus on our long-term strategy of increasing the number of automotive storefronts and leveraging our great franchise of finished vehicle manufacturing plants on or close to our network. We continue to develop new business in our Vancouver Autoport facility. We are also on target for a late fall opening of our new automotive compound in New Richmond, serving the Minneapolis-St. Paul markets. In closing, the strategies and structural advantages that we have built over the years give us resiliency during these challenging times and ensure we are well positioned for the recovery and ready to deliver on our growth opportunities. I will now turn it over to Gislain for his commentary of the financials. Thanks, Keith. Starting on page 11 of the presentation, I will summarize the key financial highlights of our first quarter performance. Operating income came in at slightly above $1.2 billion, up $135 million, or 13% versus last year. Excluding a one-time charge in depreciation and amortization related to the replacement of our positive train control back office system in 2019, operating income was up 4%. Our operating ratio came in at 65.7%, 380 basis points lower than last year. Excluding this one-time charge in 2019, the operating ratio improved by 150 basis points. During the entire month of February, over 30 illegal blockades popped up on the network that impacted revenues and limited our ability to reduce costs accordingly, which resulted in a February OR in the mid-70s. I'm extremely proud on how the team recovered and pleased to report the OR in March was in the high 50s, despite the start of the pandemic. Net income was slightly above a billion dollars and reported diluted earnings per share was $1.42, up 31% versus last year. Excluding the impact on income tax of the U.S. economic stimulus package through the CARES Act this quarter, and the expense related to the replacement of the PTC back office system in 2019, our adjusted diluted EPS was up 4% versus last year. There is no material impact of foreign currency in the quarter. Turning to expenses on page 12, our operating expenses were down 5% at $2.3 billion versus last year. I will now cover some of the key highlights. Overall, the quarter demonstrated our ability to control costs quickly, which along with our strong balance sheet will serve us well in the coming months while positioning us for the recovery. 
Labor and fringe benefit expenses were 7% lower than last year. Headcount at the end of the first quarter was down 3,100, a 12% decrease year over year. Q1 also benefited from lower incentive compensation as a result of the impacts of the illegal blockades and the pandemic. Purchase services and material expense was 4% higher than last year. This was mostly the result of higher trucking and transload expenses due to the inclusion of Transex, partly offset by lower material costs and contracted services. Finally, equipment rent decreased by 8% versus last year, mostly due to lower locomotive and rail car lease costs. Now moving to cash on page 13, we generated strong free cash flow of close to $600 million through the end of March, double the amount of, from last year. Let me now uh, address our 2020 financial outlook, including our strategic and prudent approach to financial management and capital allocation. The pandemic is having an unprecedented and extraordinary impact on the global economy. In North America, and in Canada in particular, these impacts are being compounded by the drop in oil prices. The economic outlook and therefore overall demand for transportation services is highly correlated to the duration of containment measures and the impacts on businesses and consumers, which at this point remain uncertain. As a result, CM, like many companies, is withdrawing its 2020 financial guidance. In fact, even the Bank of Canada took the unusual step of halting its economic forecast in its most recent financial update to the House of Commons. We are continuing to closely monitor demand in each of our business segments and are moving swiftly to ensure our resources are well aligned. The rail sector, and CN specifically, has a proven track record of resiliency in periods of economic weakness. At CN, we have always taken a strategic approach to the balance sheet. We have a strong investment grade credit rating, top tiered amongst all companies, and the best in the rail industry. This has once again served us well. In recent weeks, we had continued access to low cost financing, including the commercial paper market, and we are in a strong position in terms of overall liquidity. We are slightly reducing our 2020 capital expenditure program to $2.9 billion, reflecting reduced near-term demand while protecting the recovery and our CN-specific growth opportunities starting in 2021. While it is clear that no one can predict the ultimate impact of the current global economic environment, based on what we know today, the company is still working to generate a minimum of approximately 2.5 billion dollars of free cash flow. We paused share repurchases at the end of March during our blackout period. We will continue to pause and will reassess the repurchase of shares on an ongoing basis. We are committed to maintaining our previously announced dividend increase of 7% in 2020. On this note, back to you, JJ. Well, thank you, Ghislaine. And uh, I think you got an example of the team provided an overview of a strong and resilient first quarter result. Our operations are fluid, and we're managing very well to the current pandemic and supporting our customers and the broad economy. We remain very bullish on our structural advantage and our strategic growth uh, coming in 2021. So, operator, uh, in order to maintain the flow of question easy, and since we're not all located in the same, same place, I will direct the question, and also I will ask uh, each analyst to refrain themselves to one question only for the sake of fairness. So I'm going to turn it back to you, Eric, for the question period. Thank you. Please press star one at this time if you have a question. And the first question is from Sherilyn Radborn with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Sherilyn. Butcher, we're having an issue with your line. So, uh, yeah, we, we could not make uh, what your question was, uh, Sherilyn. Can you hear me now? Uh, a bit better, yeah. yeah. Could okay, you, could you, so. Yeah. Go ahead. Much better. 
Okay, so if we think about how supply chains might be reconfigured as a result of this pandemic, uh, what are your thoughts on how that might shake out between reshoring to North America versus diversification away from China to other low-cost countries in Asia, and how might those shifts impact your business? Yeah, so maybe, Sherilyn, I can start a bit, and then after that I will hand it off to, to Keith. So I think this, uh, this so-called nearshoring has been happening partly before the pandemic. It was related to the high labor costs in China and some of that manufacturing moving to other countries like Vietnam. And that's one reason why, for example, we're so working hard on the East Coast strategy, because over time, Vietnam, Singapore, you know, the, the, and the countries around to, to India will become uh, you know, a, a more important trade factor for us. I think, though, regarding, uh, I think, frankly, some of this is emotional, some of it is overblown, some of it is real. So if you're buying masks, of course, we're going to be making those masks, uh, in anything medical in North America. All that stuff that currently comes to us by our air freight, we will know that because CNN is a big buyer of masks right now, and I'm not too sure it's moving the needle when it comes to container. But the world is changing. It will never be quite the same. Keith, you want to add to some of that? Sure, JJ. And Sherilyn, uh, as you know, we've been uh, keeping close tabs on this for the last several years as these, uh, these uh, manufacturing capabilities are moving around Asia, either for lower costs or uh, to get closer to uh, the vertical integration of the supply chain in other, in other countries. So it, uh, it will continue to happen. There will be some nearshoring, but I think for the most part, um, we're we're still going to see quite a bit of uh, production in uh, in Asia. Uh, maybe some moving to uh, Mexico, but uh, I don't think there's going to be any uh, drastic changes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's my one. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Ken Huckster with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi, Ken. Hey. Good afternoon. Hey, uh, JJ and team. Um, so really sounds like a, a really solid rebound, especially into March, given especially with the start of the pandemic. Um, but just, Lane, can you maybe just uh, talk a bit about your, your $2.5 billion free cash flow reiteration? Maybe talk about some of the assumptions you've got in there, especially given your, your slight drop for CapEx. I presume you're just maintaining for future growth. But maybe just talk about some of the assumptions and, and OR built into that, uh, that assumption. Thanks. Just saying you want to provide color? Yeah, thanks, Ken. Listen, um, as a lot of companies today, we're running a lot of scenarios. Um, the visibility that we have is, is quite limited, hence why we, uh, we uh, uh, you know, removed or suspended our guidance. Um, if you look, I mean, I'm, I won't give you a specific number, but I'll tell you this. If you look at April uh, volumes uh, month to date in terms of RTMs, we're down roughly about 15%. So what we looked at is worse than that, and that, that would apply uh, uh, until the balance of year to the full balance of year. So worse to the full balance of year, that's what we've assumed, and we feel comfortable that we uh, still would deliver, uh, you know, around $2.5 billion. So that's how, um, that's what we took. Thank you, Ken. That, thank, thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Fadi Shamoun with BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Fadi. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks, thanks for taking my question. Um, I want to circle back on the $2.5 billion, just, just kind of bridging where you were last year at about $2 billion. You have CapEx down, you know, maybe in the order of $1.1 billion. You know, the implied is maybe you're you're down about 600 million uh, from from kind of operation. Are there other kind of moving part in the cash flow that we should think about to kind of understand the profitability outlook here that you're potentially talking about? So you want to add some further comments, yeah. Slaim? Again, he mentioned minimum. Yeah. So again, that's the, that's the point. No, Patty. I, I think what's important is this is a minimum. So. You can define it. You can define it otherwise to say this is, uh, you know, a worst-case scenario. So obviously, we're, we've run scenarios that are that are better, um, but you know, we wanted to offer to investors uh, the floor 
and um, and um, you know you've got the pieces. There's nothing uh, hidden in our back pocket. That this is uh, what we believe as as a minimum we will deliver. Yeah, we felt that since we're not providing guidance, uh, now is the time where cash is king, that we would give you some color on the cash. Thanks, Fadi. Thank, thank you, Fadi. Thank you. The next question is from Chris Weatherby with City. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, guys. Um, maybe if you could touch a bit on how you're managing the resources kind of in the shorter term relative to the volume declines that you're seeing. Maybe if you could touch on headcount. And, JJ, I think you had mentioned before that almost everything's on the table, sort of X, interest expense, and probably depreciation and maybe pension. But can you talk about sort of the flexibility of the line items to a degree here, you know, in 2Q as you're responding to this drop-off in RTMs? Yes, yeah, so I will start just on the headcount, and then Rob will uh, add some of the stuff he's doing week to week, really, if not twice a week. But on the headcount, uh, as we speak here, you know, like this week, we're 3,800 less people than last year, so we're 14% down, of which 2,500 are furlough uh, that we will call back in time, and 1,300 are, you know, people that we don't have on the payroll this year that we had last year. So headcount is obviously headcount rolling stock is one of the places we start Rob, you want to add some other figures and stats? Yeah, sure. So as we continue to adjust to the volumes here, I mentioned we had over 2,500 people furloughed. We haven't quite seen the bottom yet. So we'll continue to right-size our operation in terms of train starts, which will naturally pull people out and also uh, allow us to lay up locomotives as well. Um, you know, we've also used this opportunity, as I said, to further strengthen our railroad in terms of having the additional uh, time available out there on the track where even though uh, Jazan talked about reducing our, our capital spend, uh, we're going to use that in terms of increased productivity and still get the units in the ground. So we're doing a lot of things here in terms of reacting to the volumes. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, as, as of today, we have 14,000 cars in storage. We see you know, a few more uh, going into storage over the next few weeks, so we'll continue to right-size as we go along. And the team has been asked to really drive hard on fuel productivities. We're a leader in that space, and we're going to make sure we remain a leader in Q2. And as uh, Rob mentioned, even though our CapEx is down a bit, we're actually going to do as much as work as in the past, maybe more, uh, because you really get longer work block. And, uh, you know, Raj and his team in engineering has been tasked to be sure that the they get more done with the same amount of dollars. Okay, great. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. The next question is from Benoit Poirier with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Bonjour, Benoit. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So you mentioned, Father, about the, uh, the pricing environment, kind of inflation plus, but I was wondering if you could provide uh, more color about uh, how the yield should evolve given the uh, mix and fluctuation in effects and fuel. Thank you. So maybe James can provide the pricing color in general, and uh, this land would be in better shape to uh, talk to you about the, the ever long question of mix. So James, let's start. Yeah, in general, Benoit on pricing, we maintain that price discipline in good times and in bad times. You know, that's something that our customers come to expect from us. In order to offer the product that our customers need to compete and win in their end markets, we have to have, uh, you know, a disciplined approach to pricing. I think um, where, where we have to be prepared for is when we see that recovery to make sure that uh, we have some pricing leverage or pricing opportunity in front of us as, uh, as capacity may start to get scarce as we get well deep into the recovery there. Gislan? Yeah, I think, I think Benoit... Um as you see, the, uh, you were asking about um, profitability and about FX. As you know, FX is about 70, 71 cents as we speak. So that's a shock absorber. Uh, again, remind you the rule of thumb, every, every penny of, uh, of uh, depreciation in the Canadian dollar adds about 5 cents of EPS. So um, that's, that's number one. And number two, um, you know, from an expense standpoint, when you look at it, um, you know, outside of depreciation, that's pretty much fixed. And equipment rents where, you know, when we return some cars, and we did return about 2,000 center beams, a little over 2,000 center beams since last year, 
the leases have to expire, so you've got a little bit of timing there, but otherwise, um, you know, most of the other expenses are essentially uh, variable. So again, uh, very important, and as we, you know, get this business uh, coming and the business declining, then we're adjusting that variable uh, expenses, whether it be labor, purchasing services, you know, casualty and other, you could uh, assume and debate that we will get less accident costs because you have less volume on your network. So you can expect the profitability and you can expect, um, you know, uh, the, um, the OR, because I think that's, uh, that's uh, leading to your question, to come back in line uh, to what you're used to see. I think uh, we, know, we made the point in, uh, in the first quarter that, unfortunately, the illegal blockades really had an unfortunate impact on us. And, and again, as I said, our OR was in the mid-70s, but uh, I think Rob and the team and all of us are back on track and, um, and stay tuned, but you will, uh, see, uh, you will see numbers that uh, you're used to see. That's right. And just oh. for those of you who may not be following the Canadian exchange uh, so closely, we started the quarter almost around 75 cents. That's right. Now we're around 70 cents. Yeah. So obviously it has an impact on uh, the mix that you're talking about, uh, Benoit. Perfect. That's great, caller. Thank you very much. Thank you for your question. Thank you. The next question is from Ravi Shankar with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thanks. Good evening, everyone. Um, maybe a question for you. Um, as you said on the call, I think the, uh, the structural outlook is still pretty good, and you guys expect a good rebound year in 2021. Um, can you share the thought process behind pulling the three-year guidance in that case? I mean, uh, do, do, you, do you expect more of an L-shaped recovery than a V-shape, or kind of what, what does the long-term outlook look like? Yeah, so there they could be many types of recovery out there, V-shape, U-shape, or a long, slow one. So uh, I think the financial market might be a V-shape because people will go on expectation. From a freight point of view, this is where it really has to be. Is When, when will we go back to a natural uh, economy when all of us can get out of our house, go and shopping, buy furniture, go to a restaurant, start to do some travel? When will our factories uh, start to run flat out again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And that we don't really have a view because that you really reside with uh, each governor, each uh, premier of each province. And what you've seen lately is the beginning of uh, silver lining of potential return. The province of Saskatchewan is talking about reopening the economy step by step. New Brunswick, these two provinces are uh, small population, so they're more about the, the car load and the world of uh, natural resource like potash mine. And then probably the, what will take more time is common made in Michigan, Illinois, Ontario, Quebec, where you have large population and where the issue is bigger in a bigger city. So at this point, that's why we, we don't feel comfortable to provide uh, guidance on stuff that even the Bank of Canada has taken out their, uh, their forecast at this point. So we, we, we need to know more to go back to uh, providing a specific guidance. So just clarify, are you saying that you need to know more about how deep the uh, decline is going to be to set the trajectory for the, for the rebound, or are you saying that there could be some changes in the fundamental outlook of some of these end markets as well? Gislaine, maybe you want to add something? Yeah, I, I think Fadi, uh, not Fadi, sorry, Ravi, I think that uh, we, still don't, we still feel that the worst is not behind us. So until we see and we're comfortable that the worst is behind us, I think we'll have better visibility of the recovery. And, and that, this is why we felt we didn't feel comfortable to continue to guide either on 2020 or to continue to keep our uh, longer-term three-year guidance that we provided at the last analyst day. I think that, you know, we want to see, we want to get better visibility on, on how deep that thing will go. Everybody thinks that May may be the worst month um, and Q2 will be the worst quarter. And then maybe in Q3, people think that it'll be less worse and then there might be a little bit of an uptick in Q4. But at this point, it's all, uh, you know, guessing work uh, because again, these times are unprecedented. So, you know, I would say to you, stay tuned. And uh, as, uh, as the world recovers from this uh, pandemic, then we'll get better visibility and we'll be able to provide, uh, and we'll see on, on the recovery, we'll have better uh, you know, visibility on the recovery 
but we need to know how deep that, that thing is, and the worst needs to be behind us first and foremost. Yeah. It definitely feel, definitely feel like that we're close to the bottom, that the month of May might be as bad as it gets. How fast the recovery after that? That's, that's where the science, uh, we don't have the science to do that. But think in terms of the long-term network and structural advantage that we have. And also look at our confidence in investing capital this year between Edmonton and Rupert, because we believe in the trans-Pacific trade for bulk and container, as well as the fact we're also investing growth capital around Vancouver, because again, same thing, we, we have a long-term faith into the bulk and container trade business around the Port of Vancouver. So just these two things tells you that we're very confident about the long-term future, but in the short term, we're not too sure what the economy has in store for us. Okay, Great, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Steve Hansen with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, just maybe a quick one on the near-term outlook, again, relating to the magnitude and duration of this, these headwinds. I, I think it was mentioned earlier that you had 37 blank sailings on the quarter. I'm just curious that in discussions with your, your, your line customers, if you got a sense for how many you'll see in, in 2Q and 3Q. Yeah. Maybe Keith could... Uh, Give you a sense, and we had some good discussion with some of our partners about Q2 and Q3 as to how they see the world uh, from a, in that space. Keith, sure. Thanks for your question. Um, you know, it's uh, in the first quarter we saw a little bit, uh, as I mentioned, 37 blanks. Um, at this point in time, we're not seeing that many blanks for the se- for the uh, second quarter for us. That doesn't mean that there's not that many blanks that are going to happen, but after talking to our customers, that's what we're seeing is going to be impacting us for the West Coast. We do see a few uh, East Coast uh, blanks, uh, but I also want to caution you, it's it's not necessarily the number of blanks, it's how much those blanks are affecting how much discharge is on that vessel. Uh, we got caught up in that a little bit too, where we, uh, we were seeing all these blanks and uh, and uh, we saw bigger discharges with the vessels that were coming. So it's not a it's not a exact science just because you count up how many uh, blanks are going there. So we've been cautious about that. I don't think that we'll see as many for the uh, second quarter. But then again, um, we were seeing blanks happen. Um, uh, you know, throughout throughout all the months, and and they, they won't make a decision until maybe the week before they they actually call the blank. So we'll see how that pl- plays out. And if there there is the view of some who are very uh, involved in the on the ocean side on the container side that they may or may not be a so-called uh, summer peak back to school peak type thing because it will depend whether or not uh, when our kids going back to school and how much of what's already in the warehouse really needs to be replenished or not. But at the same time, our partner in the West Coast, DP World, have reiterated uh, as of a few days ago, they're still going further with the expansion at Centrum. They're going ahead with that as planned on the same time timetable. And they're also going ahead with the expansion at Rupert, again, with the same timetable, because, you know, they, they like us, view that there is a future between, you know, beyond 2020. Thank you, Steve. Great color, guys. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Brian Ossenbeck with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Brian. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you, J.J. So I want to come back to your comment on fuel efficiency uh, at CN. Uh, There's clearly some more competition from your peers talking about this area more as well. Big focal point for CN. Uh, What what else do you expect to need to implement to get to the goals that you're targeting uh, for this year and beyond, and how much of that is volume dependent and curious if you can maybe tie some financial implications to that uh, longer term reduction in emissions. Uh, what does that mean for efficiency overall? Thank you. Yeah, before I pass it on to Rob, we did notice too that other railroads are talking about fuel efficiencies as well as the reduction of carbon emission and I think it goes well and also says there is a something here for the rail industry to focus on. Rob, you're the leader of the industry right now, so you want to talk about how you're going to keep that? Yep, thanks, JJ. And, and as JJ just said, when CN sets a record, it is an industry record. We're the best in North America, have been for a while, and will continue to be. And really, a lot of that has to do with the discipline day in and day out of how we use our locomotives and maximizing the tonnage to horsepower, throttle limiting, idling locomotives. Beyond that, we use technology, working with the vendor 
um, in trying to get that technology to where our manual processes are part of that technology. You know, when you look at uh, long-term, we're targeting 29% reduction in emissions by 2030 versus 2015. And we're going to do everything we can to do that. It's part of our daily process. When we talk on conference calls in the morning, we talk about our fuel efficiency every day. Um, whether there's opportunities to improve, uh, that's part of the discussions that go on every day. So pretty solid process, I think, as technology continues to evolve. Um, we'll only get better here as we go forward. That's right. It's not because the economy is weak that we've lost our focus on the ESG. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. The next question is from Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Walter. Good afternoon, JJ. Thanks very much for taking my question. Um, so so I, I'm trying to get a handle on uh, what the world will be like uh, post, uh, post-COVID-19 and uh, JJ and, and Keith as well, you both indicated that you didn't think nearshoring would be uh, a major change from what was happening before. So I guess my question is, if it is a major change, so if it is significant and significantly more than you expect, uh, is it fair to say that the Canadian Gateway will be significantly disadvantaged in that environment? And if it's not a significant, if nearshoring, if nearshoring is not a significant change, what is your best guess as to what would be? Yeah, so maybe I can start uh, and then I'll pass it on to Keith. But Canada is a trading nation. I mean, as a nation here, we've always been a major trading nation with uh, the USMCA, which just got resigned, the CETA with Europe, which eventually will produce some results, and the trade with Asia. So we will always be a trade nation. Ports will always be quite key to us. It is important to invest into port, and that's why we're going ahead with Hutchison Port uh, with the, the terminal Quebec City so that we have a world-class uh, supply chain from the East Coast as well as the West Coast. And as I mentioned, DP World, which is also owned partly by the Kedges, who is also going ahead with the expansion in Rupert and in Sandterm. So there's no really pullback on these major capital investments. I think uh, maybe more relevant is the, the world economy will slow down, so therefore world uh, the, the trade will slow down. And uh, but you know if it's not coming from China, it might can be coming from other part of Asia, or it might be coming from Mexico. And Keith's got a great domestic animal product to move stuff around North America. But just one thing that uh, might be actually one of the fallout and, and the new world under coronavirus, the, the the pandemic, is that. As we think of people coming back to work here in our headquarters, we have 15, 16 floor. About 2,000 people are in this building usually. You know, I, I don't think that in the future there'll be as many people working from offices. There'll be more people working from home. So as we think of how people can return to work in the few weeks, few months uh, between now and the, this fall, we know we're, we're going to be looking at maybe 20% of them working from home as a start. And then I think some of the some of the real estate aspect and how you see people commuting back and forth will be one of the new world as it relates to uh, you know the pandemic. But Keith, you want to go back to how you see what the comment you get on trans-Pacific trade? So Walter, um, the nearshoring opportunities or what the focus is now, a lot of that is essential essential goods, right? The medical side. Um, if you look at what we bring through the, our gateways, and it's, whether it's into Canada or into the U.S., a lot of it's automotive, it's electronics, it's, it is white goods, it's garments, and, and I don't see those types of things being nearshored. It, it, they're not as strategic, they're not as uh, uh, security sensitive, um, so I, that, that's why we feel the way that we do. It's the yeah. types of products that are moving. They're not as emotional as masks and uh, medical supply. And we're set up very well for that, um, you know, having three coasts, uh, three gateways to come in. Um, and so they have opportunities, even if they wanted to bring it into the U.S. I mean, we service uh, Mobile and uh, New Orleans as well. So Yeah, but we keep a mind open. You know, we're still in the marketplace, and uh, we'll definitely watch all these things as to where these different balls are lay, lay, lay down. Thank you, Walter. Yep, Thank you. appreciate the time. Operator. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Group with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks. Afternoon, guys. So uh, I just wanted to follow up on a a couple of things that that came up. So 
the comment about May being the, the worst of it, a- any sense on which segments you think uh, get worse from here in the near term? And then, you know, I, I get Ghislaine's point about the OR in March, but I guess for you, JJ, is this, do you think there's a, a refocus at CN about closing the OR gap relative to peers? So maybe I'll start with the, the, the OR gap. We uh, obviously, the operating ratio of CN in the first quarter is not to our liking. We would have liked to have the, the freedom to run our railroad the way we wanted to run it. Uh, if you go back in January, we lost the main line to Vancouver for I think it was five days, Rob. We basically had a half a mountain came down our, our main line. It was hell to try to get it back. And then in February, you know, we had a month of, uh, you know, thumping the clown and moving around the country, especially in the east. So we're not satisfied with the operating ratio of the first quarter, and we really want to work on that for the second quarter. Uh, regarding, I don't know if you want to talk, make, uh, make comments, just, uh, Keith, about uh, where the different movement in, in the book of business. Right now, automotive is our, probably the biggest challenge that we have. It's 85% down because customers are not producing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd say it's even uh, greater than that down by almost 90. And so, um, you know, those are the those are the uh, things that are impacting us uh, for May. We uh, we were thinking that uh, some of the plants were going to be opening up in uh, on May 4th uh, due to a lot of social distancing and other um, issues from some of the states. That looks like that might get pushed out a week or so. We're not exactly sure. So we could be affected for at least half a month um, longer on the automotive side. That's really the the most difficult spot we have. And then, you know, as more and more people are out of work for longer, uh, for a longer term, that discretionary uh, income that they may have to go buy things for uh, the kids or get ready for school, and who knows when school is going to start back up, um, you know, th- those, those types of things are uh, not being purchased today. It's really the essential goods, the uh, things that are going across the grocery store shelves and medical supplies and, and the like. So, Scott, we, uh, I don't know if it helps you, but if, if there is a supplement, I'll allow you to do it because we didn't quite hear the beginning of your question. So, now, the, the beginning was you, you talked about May being the bottom. I was just wondering which segments. I, I get autos down the most now, I'm guessing. Which segments you thought have the most sort of incremental room to fall if in the near term? Well, from here, automotive is as low as it gets. Yeah. Uh, energy might get a little worse, even though crude and fraxan are, you know, as, as we speak, they're not that, you know, there's not that much left, but it, it might be able to go, found, go a little further. So energy, not much left in, uh, in automotive, and uh, U.S. coal, you know, might get worse from here. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. Scott. Thank you. The next question is from Konark Gupta with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, just uh, wondering if you can uh, help us understand uh, decremental margins. Uh, that is, for every dollar of revenue decline uh, because of the volume declines, what kind of impact do you anticipate on your operating income with the cost initiatives you have, you have taken here? I understand there are multiple scenarios, but uh, any help would be appreciated. Thanks. So I think Ghislaine will, will help you without giving you quality guidance on OR. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll give you any numbers related to this. And I know, uh, not, you know this question has been, uh, has been asked uh, by uh, to all, the other, all of our peers. All I, all I can tell you, uh, Conark, is um, that uh, you know, if you look at what's variable versus what's fixed, again, as I said uh, before, most of, all of our, most of all of our expense categories is are variable except depreciation and again if you remember uh, we do have a depreciation headwind this year uh, due to the uh, you know high capex that we had in the last two years and and i would tell you that uh, we said in january that depreciation was a headwind of about of about 100 million over 100 million i would say the other thing that we have that's fixed mostly fixed for canadian railroads including us is pension and again, we said, uh, and pensions expense is really determined on where the discount rate uh, finishes uh, in December of the prior year. So, um, and, and that's mostly, I mean, that's simplifying it, but that's, that's mostly the case. And we've said in January that pension was going to be a headwind of about 70 million. But everything else, I mean, if you look at labor, fuel, equipment rents, there's a bit of timing returning the cars. And CNO is variable. So, 
I think what you have to do, you get the volumes uh, every week, and, uh, and you have to look at what we're doing in terms of, uh, you know, what Rob said in terms of having people being furloughed, and you can do the math and put in your model and you can make your calculation, but, but that's the way I'll answer it is outside of pension for Canada and depreciation, most of everything else is, um, is variable and we're pushing hard and JJ is pushing the team hard, pushing us hard. Every, and we have these discussions, uh, you know, every week, even twice a week, make sure that we right-size our people, our, 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 uh, not only our people, but our assets in light of this quickly uh, reducing demand that's in front of us. Thanks, Connor, for the question. You are playing very safe. Thank you, Jusai. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. The next question is from David Vernon with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, hey, good David. Afternoon. Hey, guys. Um, thanks a lot for taking the time. Um, James, I was wondering if you might be able to help us kind of think about um, the what volume and crude would sustain through um, the next couple quarters here. You mentioned that there was some heavier stuff that you guys are going to continue to run. And then, you know, within that category, um, with the RPU kind of ending last year, this year at 4500 bucks or so, um, should we be seeing a, a headwind on that as that, you know, those, those, those thousands of carloads of the lighter crude come out? Very good question, David. James, you want to handle that? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about heavy crude in the CN franchise. We started moving a heavy, unconventional barrel way back in about uh, 2012, and that's been our most consistent barrel in good times and bad times. If you look at where we were in Q1, we moved about 50,000 barrels a day of a heavy, undiluted, non-dangerous crude. Now, this would be the same spec as would come out of a diluent recovery unit, already doing that today, and about the same volume as you would expect from a full build-out of a diluent recovery unit. So we're not going to maintain the same run rate we had in Q1 through Q2 with heavy undiluted, but the heavy undiluted barrel will continue to move, speaking to that resiliency of that type of barrel and the diversity of our, of our uh, crude franchise. We expect moving into Q2 that the majority of crude we continue to move is going to be the heavy undiluted barrel it just simply does not make sense to move the Dilbit barrel in today's climate, particularly given that you know the Dilbit barrel is a pipeline spec barrel, and the pipelines have more than ample capacity to handle that barrel. The undiluted barrel moves to different markets, and these different markets will have some some demand moving forward through uh, through Q2. So, not a scenario where we see this ever going to zero on CN. So, so that 50,000 barrels a day, I think last uh, in the last slide deck, you were doing about 170-some-odd thousand in Q2, Q3. Is that right? Uh, we did an average of 200,000 barrels a day in Q1. About 50,000 barrels a day of that was a uh, heavy, undiven- heavy, undiluted conventional barrel. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you, David. Thank you. The next question is from Jason Seidel with Cowan. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon, gentlemen. wanted to uh, ask a little bit about domestic intermodal. Obviously, there's probably going to be increased competition on the truck side. Uh, wondering where you see that shaking out as we move throughout the year and businesses start to come back. And also wondering if there's been an update from the Canadian government uh, on putting in ELDs, if that is still planned for 2021. So fuel is cheaper, but the drivers are in the same supply as they were. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and our service is uh, stellar right now. I mean, uh, that's uh, that's the true enabler of uh, of getting domestic business is uh, being able to be more truck like in uh, in getting it from uh, point A to point B, as well as going through our terminals and making sure that uh, we're efficiently handling the uh, trucker. All of those uh, key service metrics. Um, uh, we focus on daily, so uh, that's enabling us to uh, to gain share on the trucks. As JJ said, the uh, fuel's coming down, uh, but it's coming down for us as well. And so that gap is uh, between the between our fuel surcharge and their fuel surcharge is actually uh, um, about the same. So uh, the second question on the uh, ELDs, um, I, I don't believe that anything has changed from uh, what what was uh, proposed uh, and um, and uh, written about so uh, nothing nothing's changed there it's still still the 2021 yeah okay. Jason we, we view domestic intermodal as an area of growth for CN uh, there's a lot of places where truck still has a dominant share around North America just don't think of Canada think of North America 
and it's a market where the railroad, especially CN, is very focused on finding uh, new growth in the years to come. And that's the reason why we bought Transax and H&R. Thank Gentlemen, you. Gentlemen, I appreciate the color. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from John Chappell with Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's uh, John. John Chappell. Um, just, uh, Keith and James, a question for you. You have great plot in the appendix on growth opportunities, and I understand that your capital envelope is just changing uh, a little bit uh, during the disruptive period. But just wondering, any conversations with customers, whether it be PSA, or I'm, I'm sorry, partners, PSA in, in Halifax or the propane terminals or even KitiMat, uh, or maybe this is changing their views on time uh, and capital budgets for maybe some of these projects get pushed to the right. So maybe, maybe James, you talk, you want to talk about Pemina and Altagas and some of the capital extension after Rupert. And then, uh, you know, after that, uh, Keith will complete with a discussion on PSA in Halifax. So James? So that Prince Rupert supply chain continues to be the most profitable um, export opportunity for propane producers. If they export the product through, pro, through uh, Prince Rupert, they have the opportunity for a better net back. Um, Altagas is moving forward with an expand, not an expansion, but an increased uh, production out of their facility. And uh, Pemina is still uh, full steam ahead, as we understand, thinking about Q4 or possibly Q1 of next year. As we look at these new projects that are coming online, you know, you think about the long-term structural advantage that Prince Rupert uh, lays in front of us. And customers see that, and customers see, listen, there's a real opportunity here for me to take advantage of that uh, Prince Rupert gateway to get my goods to a better net back market. So, so far, so good as far as uh, folks uh, continuing to invest and support the expansion of their business on CN. On PSA, Keith? Yeah, and on PSA, I mean, uh, you know, James is referring to uh, Prince Rupert and, uh, you know, the Halifax, uh, any of the terminals that we're working with the uh, with the folks who are either building one or expanding one on the east, uh, it's the Prince Rupert model of the of the east. So um, we're we're very much engaged with PSA. In fact, uh, we're we're talking to them uh, weekly about our plans. It's uh, not only uh, operational discussions but um, a marketing effort that's joint, and uh, we're putting together some uh, very unique uh, round trip economic. Uh, scenarios for our steamship line customers they come through Halifax to make it even more enticing for them to come in. Yeah, when you look at partners like PSA, Altagas, Femina, these are very aggressive companies and uh, they like they like CN believe that uh, there is a there is an economy beyond this uh, short-term pandemic. Thank you for your question. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. The final question will be from Tom Wadowitz with UBS. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Tom. Yeah, good afternoon, JJ. Thanks for putting uh, uh, me in here at the end. It, um, I, I guess I'd, I want to refer to slide seven. You've got uh, quite a bit, you know, so either for you or Rob, you've got quite a bit in terms of idle switching yards here. So pretty nimble response on that, you know, what kind of, you know, well done in the responsiveness. Um, should we think of a component of those yards, you know, idle switching yards or you know, reduced activity, mechanical activity uh, facilities, is a portion of that structural or is that all kind of a, you know, quick cyclical response where when the volume comes back, those facilities would also all come back online? So, Rob, yeah, Rob has been tasked with uh, at least idling, and then we'll see the future, idling some of these smaller yards, which are used to be fed by Carlo Business, which right now is a little weak. Rob? Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for recognizing the nimbleness there, Tom. Um, the team really has. When you think about where we were at five weeks ago and chasing grain after the backlogs, and we delivered an all-time record for Canadian grain. Chasing coal, we delivered an all-time record in March for Canadian coal. team really did a good job in terms of bouncing back after these blockades of February. So to answer your question, when we look at this, you know, some of it will be structural, um, possibly on the locomotive side. You know, on the yard switching side, some of this is intermediate switching that allows us to keep cars moving to destination. So we'll look at that and try and make what we can permanent. But a lot of it will depend on when and where this traffic volume comes back. So uh, to answer your question, some of it will be structural. I think some of it will come back as volumes come back. Thanks for the question, Tom. 
Thank you, Tom. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The question and answer session has now ended. I would like to now I'd like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Jean-Jacques Rouet. Okay, just uh, maybe some very short wrap-up comments. Uh, thank you for your time to be to be with us today. As you can see, the network is uh, running very fluid, very solid. Uh, we are very well prepared to go through the pandemic here in the weeks and months to come. Uh, our employees are safe. That's job one at CN, and that's why we get the supply of everything and anything that we might need to keep them safe. We're already starting to work on uh, sort of the slow back to work for those who are currently working in offices, and we'll see how fast that goes in the weeks and months to come. And we're focused on beyond the pandemic, beyond, uh, you know, the, the, the lull or maybe the low point of the month of May. And we're, we're, com we're, we're confident about the future and uh, don't know if this will be a V-shape, U-shape, or what kind of shape of recovery they will be. But when that comes, we will be ready to uh, get back to running a solid railroad and do trade with uh, Canada, U.S., and with the rest of the world. So on that note, thank you for joining us, and uh, see you back in July. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.